Mr. Bush and Mr. Blair, who imposed a sectarian constitution on the country in 2005 and approved it, and now are saying, oh, those are sectarians, these Shias and Sunnis are fighting each other. Well, what did you expect? It's Sunday, the 5th of January 2020, and this is Linkse Hobbies, Dutch podcast of the authentic left. Today we have an extended interview with Yasmin Mata, chair of the Hand of the People of Iran campaign about the recent development concerning a possible war with Iran. At the request of Yasmin, I'm providing this with an English introduction, but mind that this interview was intended for a Dutch audience. Despite that, I hope it's useful for you as well. Please mind that the audio of Jasmine clips quite a bit. I did try to edit away the rough edges, but the content is still worth it, so do keep listening. So, uh, Jasmine, you have been in the podcast uh, before, so uh, uh, introductions aren't uh, that uh, strictly necessary. Um, so let's just uh, dive in, because uh, World War Three seems to be on pause uh, right now, uh, despite the provocative uh, execution by the U.S. Uh, of General Soleimani, uh, Soleimani is uh, the pronunciation, I believe. Uh, um, so uh, let's just dive uh, right in. Uh, what is your assessment of uh, what kind of response we can uh, expect from Tehran? At this stage, difficult to say. My guess is that they will do small but targeted actions, maybe against US embassy in Baghdad or in Beirut, uh, where they have allies. And of course, today we saw the large demonstration in Baghdad, uh, which mm. was the procession for the morning. My understanding is that it will go to three other Iraqi cities. Uh, there will be a lot of crowd, a lot of uh, emotions on this. Um, there are uh, various ways Iran can respond, but remember that on the whole, uh, Iran is not as powerful as the US, so it will have to be uh, very measured what it does. Um, and um, we will have to see. It's very difficult to predict, to be honest. I see, I see. So it's uh, an open question for now. Yes. Yeah. Okay, that's fair enough. Then, uh, going zooming in a bit on the attack itself, uh, we've heard in the uh, Dutch media the last few days uh, how General uh, Soleimani was a terrorist for the U.S. and praised uh, a praised hero for uh, Iran and uh, Iraq even. But who was General Soleimani? Okay, so he uh, came to prominence during the Iran-Iraq War. Um, he was. Uh, a good fighter, a revolutionary guard, and I believe since 1988 or even maybe a bit later, he became one of the known faces of the revolutionary guards and if, and later its commander and commander-in-chief. Um, he, his main roles were outside Iran. I know that some Iranians are now posting stuff about how he might have been involved in various repressive measures. From what I can understand, his main roles were outside Iran. He came to prominence 
because of the war against the Islamic State, ISIS and ISIS, both in Iraq and in Syria, where he um, appeared as the figurehead of the local Shia groups fighting ISIS, Islamic State. But of course, once he had achieved that position, and once the US media, amongst others, were praising him, I remember him on the cover of Time magazine, were (laughs) calling him the man who defeated uh, ISIS, he wasn't going to disappear. So he remained, if you like, uh, a figure, a figure of of some prominence in um, media. And um, it was unlikely that then he would just, if you like, leave Syria or leave Iraq. So for Iran, given the sanctions, given other pressures that the United States has imposed on the country, um, the leverage, or if you like, the way they can retaliate is by keeping their allies close to themselves in um, Lebanon, in Syria, and in Iraq. In terms of Iraq, we have to remember why we are in this situation, because it looks like people have forgotten what has happened. The U.S. and the United Kingdom and allies, European allies, and the whole coalition of the, against uh, Iraq uh, deposed Saddam Hussein, who was a dictator, uh, but he was a semi-secular person. And it was inevitable that as soon as he was deposed, the Shia majority population, many of whom in their many factions and political groups had close associations with Iran's Islamic Republic, would come to power. And that's exactly what happened. So the Iran-Iraq relationship um, is was, if you like, an inevitable byproduct of what Bush and Blair did in the region. Right. It's through that that we see the rise of um, uh, Islam, uh, first Al-Qaeda, Iraqi mm-hmm. Al-Qaeda, and then um, Islamic State, um, is, uh, ISIS, then Islamic State. Why do we see this right? It's partly because the new state is a sectarian state, it's a Shia state, and there is the occupation is still going on, the Americans are still there. The Sunni population feel very isolated, and some of them ally themselves with um, Saddam, uh, with former generals of the Saddam era, Basis, and that's how we see the formation of Islamic State. Right? Islamic State didn't appear from nowhere. There is a mm-hmm. good reason why it was created, and of course, they were uh, very rich Salafi Sunni um, uh, 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 supporters of ISIS in the Persian Gulf countries who financed them. Maybe later on they realized this is getting a bit mad, this organization, but they were financing them for quite a while. And it's through that that we see the power of Islamic State in both Syria and Iraq. And don't forget that at some stage they they covered a very large part of both of these two countries and had uh, were exporting oil, were a state 
on their own and they were doing all sorts of things all over the world. So it was inevitable that um, the declared enemy, which was Iran's Islamic Republic, fought against this creation, which was ISIS. And uh, Soleimani played a very important role in that. I think his prominence inside Iran was also because of the way he was involved with uh, Lebanese Shias, with um, Assad supporters in Syria, but also in Iraq, where he he had um, close association with these Shia militias that are now part of the conflict with the United States. Right. Yeah, I'm happy that, that you give some uh, context uh, regarding that, because uh, when investigating for this uh, interview, I know that there are actually, there's actually a pretty lukewarm proxy war going on in Iraq uh, between US and US-backed forces and the Iran and their allies. So we barely hear anything about this war in Dutch media at least. So what is going on more recently speaking? Okay, so more recently... Uh, I think we have, we witnessed the rebellions both in Iraq and in Lebanon against the neoliberal economic policies of both states. And in that, Iran was also targeted by the protesters. So the young people who were protesting in Iraq were also saying not just about US, not just about the economy, but remember that, for example, the Iraqi state is extremely corrupt. It's very um, uh, well known that most of the ministerial jobs are, uh, there's a lot of cronyism, there is corruption and so on. And some of that is, if you like, very similar to Iran in some ways. But uh, the young protesters were, as far as I could see from their slogans, addressing these aspects of the policies of the state. So the United States got some kind of encouragement, probably, from this, in thinking that maybe they could jump on this bandwagon and make sure that Iran leaves Syria. Now, Iran leaving Syria is not as easy as they can think of. It shows the complete ignorance of U.S. administrations from Bush to Obama to uh, currently uh, Trump in not understanding the connections, the close connections between the Shia communities between the two countries and the fact that today tens of thousands appeared on the streets of Iraq for mm -hmm. this guy who is an Iranian shows the shows that connection. So you can't simply say Iran out of Iraq. If you want, if you didn't want Iran in Iraq, you shouldn't have deposed of Saddam Hussein. I'm sorry, it's mm. a bit late now to get to say Iran out of Iraq. Right. So the US tried to do this. I don't think they were successful, partly because we saw last week, earlier in uh, Tuesday uh, last week, we saw this takeover of the U.S. embassy in Baghdad by, mm -hmm. okay, maybe probably Shia militias, but they were also ordinary people. There was quite a large crowd in that embassy compound. So we did see, uh, if you like, the way the Iraqis reacted 
or at least as uh, allies of Iran in Iraq reacted to the U.S.'s policies. And there were rumors that um, the, uh, this weekend the Iraqi parliament was going to have a vote about asking U.S. troops to leave Iraq. And for the first time, the Shia government was expected to win this vote. Right. Mm-hmm. So there are those who are saying there is a link between um, what has happened and the proposed vote, i.e. Um, this so-called war that Trump is saying he avoided by killing Rassem Soleimani has to do with his uh, 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 with this vote, if you like. Mm-hmm. So there is a mm-hmm. connection mm-hmm. between the two. That's that's an interesting uh, uh, link uh, there. Um, so uh, the attacks happened on Iraqi soil. Uh, uh, looking at the Iraqi society as a whole, what does that mean for them? Does it mean that uh, I believe the uh, government is actually quite unstable? I mean that this is going to this isn't going to improve, is it? The gov- uh, you're absolutely right. If I was the Iraqi government, I would be in despair now. Not just because of the attacks that. Took place yesterday, but also because on Tuesday they lost control of the green zone. So the, basically, mm. the Iraqi government seems to be completely powerless, both when the Shias come to do something, but also when Trump decides. And they didn't. The U.S. administration didn't even tell the Iraqis they were going to do this until it happened. So, uh, and I believe there was another occasion when somebody traveled to Iraq and they didn't tell the Iraqis until Pompeo was in Iraq or, or something similar. Anyway, it shows a very weak government, but this has been throughout the last, whatever, for, since 2003, 17 years, it has been a very unstable and weak government because this is a government that really is the product of uh, occupation. And I call it, mm. you know, a surrogate. I don't know how you would describe it. It's not a... Uh, it's only there because only a Shia um, MP can become prime minister. Uh, the president hasn't got much power, but he is uh, usually an insignificant Kurd, one way or another. And then the speaker of the parliament has to be Sunni. So within the Shia parties, there is cronyism, there is corruption, there is infighting. And all the time, the governments have been weak, ineffective, uh, and they are faced with, uh, to be fair to them, they are faced with two occupiers, the United States on the one hand, but also Iran, not as an occupying force, but as a force that has significant power. Uh, looking at the the, the other side, um, uh, 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 the, there has been quite some speculation regarding Trump's motive for this uh, attack, uh, like he's dodging his uh, impeachment <laughs> or basically starting his re-election campaign. Um, now he's having double speak, saying he wanted to actually avert a war, not start one. Uh, <laughs> what is what is your take on this? Okay, I think. Um, Iran had been 
creating a few problems over the summer with the attack, for example, on the tankers, then the attack on the oil refinery in, in Saudi Arabia, then more recently in Iraq. So, and some of the U.S. papers, newspapers who are not pro-Trump, like New York Times, Washington Post, these types of papers were saying um, Trump is really um, afraid of Iran, or he he gives all this rhetoric, but he does nothing. So, in some ways, he couldn't have started an election year, both with impeachment, but also with this claimed by his opponents that he's really bluffing about Iran. Yeah? I think mm. both of these played a role. How much? I don't know. But remember that this is a risk because we don't know what will happen. So mm. uh, on the one hand, he might uh, um, delay the impeachment. I don't see it at this stage unless we're into full war. And at the moment, I don't see it happening like that. But you never know. As I said, mm -hmm. it's very difficult to predict. But unless we're in a full war situation, I don't think he can avoid the impeachment hearings. So from that point of view, um, yes, it's a good diversion at the, new, at the beginning of the year. But it can't last as, as, unless something happens which we can't predict. Right. Um, so moving uh, uh, more to, uh, um, well, nearby shores, um, you are the uh, chair of the Hopi Steering Committee in the UK. Um, for our listeners, uh, what is Hopi and what is their role in the anti-war movement and the British labor movement? Okay, so uh, Hopi was set up in the last time there was a threat of war against Iran, a very serious threat of war around 2007-2008. And in some ways, in 2015, when the nuclear deal was signed, we didn't uh, close Hopi, but we wound down, we reduced our activities because of the nuclear deal and the fact that the threat of direct threat of war was... Um, removed to a certain extent. Sanctions have incurred, severe sanctions over the last 12 months means that we've relaunched Hopi before the recent events, before uh, 2020. And um, we are campaigning against sanctions, but what differentiates Hopi from other anti-war campaigns is that we also don't support Iran's Islamic Republic. Mm -hmm. Even on a subject like Qasem Soleimani, let me add that this has come at a very bad time for the Iranian working class because there were protests in Iran in late November against unemployment, against subsidy, the, right, the cancellation of fuel subsidy, which affected the poorest section of the population. There were very large protests in about 100 cities. Of course, uh, those, the, these protests against the government are very often against these neoliberal economic policies. And what we are, of course, what will happen now is that repression will increase. The state is using all this as signs that there is threat of uh, war, that the country is being um, threatened by the United States. And so 
it, the atmosphere has be, has become more repressive, but can become even more repressive. And in this hope, he, hope is on the side of the Iranian people as opposed to the government in Iran. We recognize the repressive nature of the government and well, we defend the struggles of the Iranian working class in particular against um, the state. Mm -hmm. Right. So, yeah, you, you already mentioned it, uh, that, that Hopi, perhaps for our listeners uh, to clarify, Hopi stands for the hands of the people of Iran. Um, so the, 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 these double demands huh, against imperialism, but also for the overthrow of the theocratic regime, um, it, it's pretty unique on the left. Uh, so why... Yeah, well, you already mentioned some of the reasoning why you felt the need for this double demand. Um, but why is this so unique on the left, perhaps? Uh, because most of the left will say, well, if you have this kind of demand, you are effectively uh, supporting imperialism by attacking the theocratic regime. I would say the opposite, because in some ways... It is precisely because the left has not supported the struggles of the Iranian working class that um, right-wing forces are gaining in, in this whole debate, right? Um, and it is very clear that you can, at the same time, oppose imperialism, but also oppose internal reactionary forces. There is no contradiction in that. Uh, some people have done it in terms of other wars in Iraq, for example. Some of the Iraqi comrades did take the view, but some of them did take that position. But also, um, okay, so what, are, what is the alternative? The alternative is to say the Iranian working class should not struggle for its uh, class demands, for its independence, for its... Uh, uh, um, right, democratic right to organize uh, because there is a threat of war. And then you lose the Iranian working class. How, why would, um, if, uh, uh, you know, the threat of war has been used by the Iranian regime for decades to um, silence the opposition, to say that anyone who raises a voice in opposition to the government must be a spy, must mm -hmm. be a CIA agent. Mm -hmm. These mm -hmm. are all false accusations. And the left has to take a principled position. Sometimes it's not easy to take a principled position because you do get attacked from both sides. But on the other hand, um, there are times when it's more important to stick to your principles than, if you like, gain a larger crowd. <laughs> mm -hmm. Stand with uh, the working class uh, uh, and not with m uh, this or that, uh, that uh, government. government. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah, well, about that. So wh whoever wins, wins this round in the conflict, the people are bound to lose. Um, so why does the Iranian state not de-escalate the tensions that they have had for decades now? What, uh, what is in, in it for them? I mean, I think in, in one way, it's um, that they do have enemies outside. So they're paranoid, but there are good reasons for them to be paranoid. For example, Saudi Arabia and Israel, who mm. constantly lobby the U.S. to attack Iran and reduce its power. On the other hand, Iran has become powerful in the region, but as I explained earlier, we can blame Bush and Blair for that. 
Mm. And it was a direct, very direct consequence of the wars of 2001 and 2003. In less than two years, Iran's two main enemies were defeated. So, and Iran became powerful. So you can't, <laughs> uh, you can't uh, deny that. But as a result of this, then they are uh, under attack by others. But I think one aspect that people forget is that this is a regime that actually likes crises. It's a government that came out of a revolutionary process to defeat that revolution, right? So its main purpose has been to defeat the uh, aspirations, the demands of the revolution of 1979. It no longer has much legitimacy. It's, it has uh, the slogans of the revolution, even for the religious people, not for the left, with things like freedom, equality, social justice, and independence, okay? So they have opposed, there's no democracy, obviously. There isn't much social justice doesn't exist. The gap between the rich and the poor is worse than during the Shah's time. So the one thing they can present is this um, so-called independence, because they're not anti-imperialist. They don't even use the word imperialism. They're anti-West, mm. if you like, rather than anti mm. But this is the legitimacy they've kept. And so if they lose that, what, why, should, why, why should anyone take them seriously? But also, this state of crisis is very good because you constantly can say, well, we can't deliver economic um, prosperity, we can't deliver freedom and uh, democracy, we can't fight social injustice because we are at war, because there is a crisis. And that's been the policy since 1979. Uh, many of us uh, would say that even the takeover of the American embassy in 1980 was part of that whole attitude of um, let's create a crisis so we don't have to continue with having to rep respond to people's demands after the revolution. Um, all right. So looking at this, Total mess, to say the least. Um, what would be the first steps to remedy the situation? Look at what we can do from the UK and the Netherlands. As much as I uh, uh, oppose Iran's Islamic Republic and I, as much as I don't like dictatorship of the region, such as Syria or whatever else, I still think that the main demand should be opposition to any intervention. And here I don't mean just military intervention, these so-called humanitarian interventions. Every time these people go, they make the situation worse. So I think one of the main demands has to be the end of uh, military, humanitarian, whatever, economic interventions in the Middle East, get out of the Middle East. And that's mm -hmm. something we can say with the rest of the anti-war movement, but on the other hand, we would not follow their calls to support reactionary governments that exist, because then we would say at the same time as posing this 
non-end interventions, we Mm -hmm. also call for solidarity with, for example, the protesters in Iran who were calling for an end to neoliberal economic uh, policies, a solidarity with Iraqi youth who were against corruption and cronyism. Right. And and how would that solidarity? Because uh, Iran is just uh, uh, a bit out of the neighborhood, so to speak. Uh, yeah. <laughs> how would that uh, solidarity concretely look like? Sure. What what would that mean? Okay, so uh, Iran has a young population who are, uh, I would say, addicted to the internet. <laughs> They're far more, um, if you like, close to us, far closer than we imagine. In that we mm-hmm. can communicate with them, we can create uh, a solidarity, we can call on trade unions to support our demands and put forward practical policies, which are against sanctions, but also don't support um, reactionary government in Iran. We should um, call on these trade unions to uh, defend specifically the the, uh, demands of the Iranian working class, including the release of labor activists who've been arrested, Uh some of whom are given very long sentences for going on strike for against non-payment of wages. I mean, this is just unbelievable that in this day and age you have to defend workers like that. And they're given 11 years, 15 years in one case for going on strike. So uh, we should uh, we should promote those demands and we should call on trade unions to take it seriously. In Britain, some of the trade unions have been very good on this, but I'm afraid not all of them, because some of them are very much into the traditional uh, support for the government because of anti-imperialism. All right, then uh, perhaps uh, at last, uh, zooming uh, back to the uh, region, um, say that this immediate crisis is averted. Uh, what will be longer-lasting steps to solve the complete chaos that is the Middle East? Well, on the one hand, uh, the chaos is caused because of false borders. These borders don't really often represent... Uh, the nationalities and the regional diversity. So on the one hand, rather than separate, we should defend, obviously, the rights of various national minorities for self-determination. But at the same time, we have to argue for the unity of the working class in all of these countries, because on their own, they're not going to be powerful enough to overthrow the current systems, but as a united force, they can do so, and they should. we should call for uh, that level of solidarity. For example, if Iranian workers and Iraqi oil workers, oil workers in the two big countries of the region, united and uh, the joint actions, it would really does, it will make a difference. It will change, it can change some policies in the region. But if they start competing against each other, if Saudis use one side against the other, we are not in that situation. So in the long term, the, if you like, 
solid international solidarity in the region is the only way to avoid these regional wars and sectarian wars between Shia and Sunni. Shias and Sunnis lived for centuries next to each other during the Ottoman Empire. I know that was not the best of time, but it was they weren't fighting each other. And that's because there was relative autonomy for various parts. It is mm-hmm. the imposition of sectarian governments through colonial rule, in Lebanon through colonial rule, and in Iraq through Mr. Bush and Mr. Blair, who imposed Mm -hmm. a sectarian constitution on the country in 2005 and approved it, and now are saying, oh, those are sectarians, these Shias and Sunnis are fighting each other. Well, what did you expect? (laughs) You you were the dominant occupying power, and the dominant occupying power has a responsibility for the disasters that has happened now in Iraq, and of course, the fact that Iran is trying to benefit from. Right. Well, in a way, that is uh, an argument that the imperialists also used to uh, remain in the places that they have invaded. Of course. But uh, uh, unless you deal with the root of the problem, they will mm. always argue the same case. Right. The yeah. root of the problem didn't exist until they started intervening, until they deliberately divided to secure their rule right okay then uh, Jasmine uh, thank you for your time and uh, good luck with the uh, struggle thank you very much (laughs)